Welcome to AML Conversations by AML RightSource. In this edition, AML RightSource Vice Chairman John Byrne sat down with Dan Soto during the most recent ACAMS AML and Financial Crime Conference in Hollywood, Florida. Dan is the Chief Compliance Officer at Ally Financial and a member of the ACAMS Advisory Board. The conversation goes through Dan's career starting in the public sector to where he is today, including comments about compliance in 2018 and some of the things he has learned along the way. We hope you enjoyed this edition of AML Conversations. So Dan, a um, couple things strike me about why it's important that we chat with you today, and that is your career has spanned from in the government compliance, AML, now clearly AML++++, you're the chief compliance officer at Ally, and you've been through a number of pretty important parts of regulatory and legislative activity. You know, 9-11, pre-9-11, the, the financial crisis, and sort of where we are now under this administration where, frankly, I'm sort of confused on where they are regarding regulation, but I'm really curious how you manage that today. So, But what I want to do first is sort of go back in time. Sure. Um, first job out of college that related to banking was what? FDIC. I um, actually did an internship with the FDIC. Yeah. In fact, a friend of mine from my hometown, which is just under a thousand people in Nebraska, yeah. we uh, our first day on the job, we showed up at the wrong bank. <laughs> the only thing that saved us is we had some interns that were coming in from Arizona into the Midwest. They went to the wrong state, so we fared out better than they did. Yeah, that was a hell, hell of a start to a career. So uh, you were an examiner then? Yeah, bank examiner. I wasn't commissioned. Um, um, after I finished college, I went ahead and joined the FDIC full-time, uh, became a commissioned bank examiner. Uh, that was in the 82, 83 time frame. Um, and then I actually was examining banks through what was then the ag, oil and gas, and real estate crisis. Sure, right, right. And uh, I ended up going from supervision, regulation, looking at consumer uh, practices, even trust exams, uh, to becoming part of the uh, FDIC's uh, liquidation department. Wow. Uh, working with the, uh, the old uh, RTC and funding the bad banks. Uh, but the, the, the odd thing was, was just now I'm with the liquidation department and um, – and then trying to collect monies from bonding companies where banks had gone wrong, uh, and then working with the FBI in, uh, in prosecuting uh, bad bankers. Interesting. So um, what what were the bankers guilty of at that point? Was it insider reviews? Was it loan issues? What exactly was the – what were the issues then? It, it was all insider abuse. And, and the hard part that was – you know, really difficult to try to hone in on was we started to see all these straw man loans where there were parties who were real, they were banking at the institution, they might be, it might even had credits at the institution. Uh, they were in there making loans to those individuals uh, and putting it back into the bank. Um, and you know, whether the individuals were complicit or not was difficult to tell, 
but the bankers were clearly doing bad things. In some cases, it looked like they might even been trying to save the bank. In other in other uh, institutions, it, it was hard to determine. But either way, they were committing insider fraud. And then there was, um, of course, uh, Penn Square Bank, which was one of the larger, uh, well-known uh, closures, and that was just crazy. Yeah, that was just crazy. I mean, you had um, taking down a small. It was a bank in a strip mall uh, that was selling oil and gas loans to places like Seafirst, Continental Bank, uh, banks out on the, the East Coast in New York. And it took down Continental Bank right. um, as part of uh, what it was doing. It, you had loans being made to, you know, well-known um, sports figures, uh, but they, those were really just bad loans, and, and they, those were really just fraudulent loans. Did you um, enjoy that as uh, as sort of a work product, uh, working with the FBI? Go, you know, from a so it's almost a law enforcement adjunct of what the agencies were doing then, and still do today, yeah. obviously. Did, so is that the part of uh, banking regulation that intrigued you at the time? Well, there were three parts to this, John, that I just thought were fascinating. Uh, the first part was um, working with the FBI, being the so-called bank expert. And, you know, you get in and you have the defense's um, attorneys and they're smart as heck and so you're telling me you're an expert at banking. Mm -hmm. This means you know every regulation, right? And you kind of want to hem and haw a little bit, but you just say right, and hopefully you know they don't test you on your absolute knowledge on every single regulation. Um, and then you hear their stories, and you're going, gosh, I might have been wrong. But then you go back and look at the facts, and uh, uh, and, and they were prosecuted. So right. they ended up uh, doing jail time. The, the second part that was fascinating was then trying to collect from the insurance companies. Really? Uh, because, you know, they don't want to pay. Right. And there was a lot of banks failing, and then so they really didn't want to pay. Uh, and they'd come in with their hotshot lawyers and start just throwing darts at you, and I'm just sitting there and sitting there and just kind of taking it all in because I wanted to hear what they had to say. Um, and then finally you get to the point where you just go, these guys committed fraud. They were bad people, they were bad actors, and you were protecting them. Mm -hmm. And they ended up always paying, um, never settled, always wow. got the full payment. So and here's the biggest ahead. piece, though, because then you take it back to the, just the pure regulatory side. Back in those days, the regulators had gone to m less being on-premise and looking more for the um, using off-site data gathering to rate institutions and determining uh, where they would go. Um, and back then I was um, um, also, in addition to doing uh, exams and liquidation, I was also part of the training of bank examiners um, for the FDIC. And we ta took these off-site reports, the uh, Uniform Bank Performance Reports, and you'd put them down in front of some examiners and you'd say, okay, based on the numbers, rate this institution. They'd come through almost inevitably. They'd rate an institution as a one, which is the highest rating for an institution based on 
all of the capital standards, the, the earnings potentials, the loan loss reserves, everything. And then you'd show them the name of the bank, Penn Square Bank. Wow. It failed. Yeah. Uh, so it just set a different mindset of saying, okay, we have to look at things differently. And went from, we still kept the reports, but we went from a less reliance on the gathering of data to doing more physical on-site and testing the system and, and, and really working to look at the loans individually, look at the banks individually, and just a lot more conversations with the bankers. So you moved from there to the Federal Reserve. I did. And that's when I first met you. Um, what sort of work, I don't know how long you were at the Fed, but what sort of work did you start with and eventually you moved in to some version of AML, I don't think it was even called AML then. But um, did you, were you still doing training of examiners? So what exactly was your yeah. were your roles at the uh, at the Fed? So I was um, with the FDIC. I was out in Washington D.C. training bank examiners. Um, I was on a plane back to Kansas City where I lived at the time, and I was sitting next to this guy. I was like, I just wanted to take a nap. I'm very good at sleeping on planes. <laughs> And he just wanted to talk the whole flight. And so he started asking me what I did. By the time I landed in Kansas City, he was saying, I have an opening for you if you want to come and work in Washington. He was the head of the examiner training program for the Federal Reserve. Oh, wow. Um, so I went a few months, went by, and I was starting to get tired of just seeing uh, bad banks fail. Um, it was depressing. Right, you'd sure. See, and you'd see people who were trying hard, farmers, um, for example, and they're in old jalopies with the family and trying to keep the family farms. And it, and it really just became depressing. So I said, I'm going to go to D.C. I want to see if I can make a difference or at least learn how to work, uh, go at this from not just a bank side but from a holding company standpoint. So I, I went to D.C. in uh, February of... 97, no, that wouldn't be right, 87. Yeah, I was 87, say. <laughs> 87. And um, uh, my career started with the, uh, the ex um, examiner training. And what was really cool about it was, you know, there were some of the same people that I knew who were training um, with me as, as trainers. Right. Um, at then, the old uh, uh, Roslyn... Um, examiner training site with the FFIC. Uh, the Fed also had um, a training center that was located close to their offices. Um, but, but what was really cool is at that time, uh, the Fed was doing a lot of outreach programs with the IMF and World Bank mm -hmm. and bringing in central banks from mostly developing countries into the United States and, um, and saying, let's, let's set up somewhat akin to programs that we would train U.S. regulators and give them a feel for how you know, bank examination should be conducted, uh, again, for third world countries that, that didn't really have systems set up at that point. Of course, we couldn't give them any electronic uniform right. bank performance reports, but there were other things that we could uh, do. But so it was kind of cool now taking a guy who's from a little town in Nebraska didn't venture out too far, and suddenly I'm dealing with third world countries coming into the United States, and it was a just just a great learning experience, just hearing and seeing different uh, types of 
not just ethnicities, but just backgrounds, because you talk to the people individually, and you come to find that, you know, people are the same no matter where they are, no matter around, around the world, and they're all trying for the same thing. Good careers, trying to do the right thing, uh, trying to make money, um, wanting to protect their families, uh, and wanted just a little slice of goodness. So it was, it, was, it was a lot of fun doing that. So you started doing that. When did you first get exposed to uh, money laundering-related issues? Um, so while I was training examiners and, and around the, gosh, I want to say 92, 93 time frame, um, BCCI was going, Rick Small comes to the Fed, um, and he's asked to create a, a, a special enforcement area. And um, he was one of the trainers who would come over to train our bank examiners. And uh, and he'd seen me training a little bit as well, because as, I did some speaking as well. Uh, he knew that I was a bank examiner, so he said, I, I need I need a bank examiner on my investigations team. Um, and after about two or three times that he came to the training center, uh, that's when I joined him. Mm-hmm. And so that, that got me started down the, the money laundering side. Uh, and I'll tell you a funny story on that. So... Um, I don't remember if it was Greenspan or Volcker, but he was going to be giving testimony, and it had to do around you know corruption, money laundering, and so forth. And uh, Rick throws down the uh, chairman's um, um, speech that was in draft form, and that they were that Rick and others were working on. He said, "I need you to read this and see what you think." So I read it and I said, "Well, it's pretty good." I go, "Who's this?" Uh, BSA expert that you hired, and he looks at me and goes, that would be you. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, I've done uh, BSA exams in the past, but that consisted of about 12 questions on an eight and a half by 14 piece of paper, and it wasn't much. So he goes, and here is the BSA regulation. Read it fast. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I do remember a quick uh, Rick story as well where he told me he was briefing a Fed governor, and during the course of the briefing, he looks up, and that Fed governor is sound asleep. (laughs) Neither of the two you mentioned was the person in question. So I thought that was good, because I've had similar experiences with members of the Senate, where you're in there talking to them, and they're clearly, they're out. So um, you you worked at the Fed for a number of years, and then you went to the private sector. So I think I'm right on this, that your first institution you went to was Nations Bank. A, what made you leave the government, and what was your original role at Nations Bank? Yeah, so um, Nations Bank at the time had an international private banking business uh, catering mostly to um, wealth management uh, clientele that were, I'm going to say they were primarily Latin um, um, and at the time, we at the Fed had put out a paper on international private banking and money laundering. So um, one of the folks that worked for Nations while I was at a conference came up to me afterwards and said, hey, we'd really like you to come and, talk and, and meet with us. Um, and I probably turned the individual down three or four or five times. Um, and then finally I said, you know what, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm 40 years old, so that was a while back. And... And uh, I said, I'm going to go look. And I did, and 
of course, I see these palatial offices with all this wood and these great offices. I go, wow. All right, I'm in. <laughs> and so that, that really was me just saying, I've been in the uh, public sector. I want to give the private sector a, a chance and see what happens. What, what was the biggest adjustment you had to make from A, uh, being an examiner, B, training examiners, doing policy, D, E, and F, whatever? Uh, what was the biggest adjustment that, that, if you can remember back then, that you that you had to make going to the private sector? Uh, particularly, obviously, banks are going to be examined and dealing with policies and regs and all of that. Uh, believe it or not, it was overcoming fear. Uh, the fear of, I'm now in an operation where people have been in their institutions. They know every nook and cranny of how the business operates or their operations work. Uh, they've dealt with regulators in the past. And, you know, I've been inside the Beltway for 10 years. And do I really know reality? And, you know, there are some smart people uh, asking me questions about capital markets and applications and um, trades happening overseas. And I'm just, like, trying to digest it and understand it. But, but you know, these were in big meetings with forums and the questions directed at me because I'm the guy from the Fed. And um, so my first couple of meetings, I remember being kind of like, I need a pass. I need to look at this a little bit more, and I'll get back to you. Um, and then as meetings started to progress, I noticed that there were a lot of repeat meetings where mm -hmm. people just would ask questions and nothing was getting done. Uh, and I finally decided um, I need to do a little bit with my instincts, but... It was about making a decision. You're never going to have all of the information, and everything is risk re risk reward. And um, you know, there were there, there's no playbook for some of the transactions that people are asking to take a look at. And um, I remember one in particular, and uh, it dealt with um, potentially um, some players overseas who were potentially involved with terrorist financing and money laundering. And, and as you started to just pull the thread on everything, you'd go, oh gosh, you know, everybody could be tied to money laundering or terrorist financing if you, you're looking at, you know, are we dealing with oil and gas? Uh, well, you know, there's people in Texas involved with oil and gas. At the time, uh, maybe one of the uh, presidents might have been involved with oil and gas. And so... And, and there were investments being made in the U.S. with very well-known companies that are publicly traded and that we all do business with every day. Um, and, and so if, if you try to get enough information, you almost get too much information to be able to make a decision. And I, and I remember going to a, a regulatory agency, and it wasn't my previous one, um, and I said, you know, we kind of have this thing going on here, and we've got some players here. Uh, do you have anything on these individuals? Um, after about a month, I get a um, I get a newspaper article, and I'm going, this is the first piece of paper that I got nine months ago when we were doing our due diligence. So it just told you that nobody really knows, and, and, and sometimes you just got to use... Uh, you just got to make a decision to go with it. It may not always be right, but you just go with it. So for me, it was the 
the biggest change was going from, you know, we could write out a policy, we could do examiner training, but the big difference was now we had to operationalize right. all those policies, all those procedures, day-to-day uh, -day transactions along with the big businesses, and, and uh, there just wasn't a playbook for it. Is it fair to say that it depends, I suppose, on the examiner, but another adjustment could be examiners that didn't know as much as you knew, uh, not just about your bank, because that's obvious, but maybe about the regulations? Uh, because we've, we've, we hear that article, we hear that argument today in 2018, um, many, many examples, and maybe you have your own, but others that have talked to both of us and said, I'm in these meetings with these examiners, they may mean well, but sometimes I feel I have a better grasp of the practical as well as the technical than they do. Is, is that an adjustment that has to be made, or does it de sort of depend on the examiners? Like anything else, some are better than others. Well, I, I haven't forgotten my roots. So sure. I, yep. I know there were times I, as a, as a regulator, I was being asked to look at institutions and sometimes physically um, visiting those institutions. Uh, and as I think back on those, I'm like, I had no clue. Compared to what I see now, and some examiners, to your point, are really, really good. They're well-educated. Some of them even are coming from banks, so they kind of understand that. But but then there are others you just go, I, I do know more than they do. Um, but some of that is just experience. Sure, and sure. It's not, and, it, and it's not just time in seat. Some of it is they just haven't seen as much as I have because I've been to so many different institutions in my career. Um I think the important thing in all of this, though, is we need to get to the same point. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to just take a stance and argue the point all day long, you're never going to win. Um, trying to find some compromise or trying to lead with facts. And remember, there's not always 100% of the facts, especially as you're dealing with individual transactions um, or even just new types of initiatives and businesses or, you know, all the stuff we're dealing with with new products like cryptocurrencies right. or new payment systems like Zelle, there's not going to be a right or a wrong answer in some of these um, questions and some of the issues we're dealing with. But to your point, um, yeah, you, there's just a different level of experience, um, and some are better than others, but that's no different than the regulators being able to say some bankers are better than others. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's a fair point. Um, I, I don't want to end this without asking you. I know you you were with a number of institutions in the 2000s, and now you're with Ally Bank, and we're now obviously in 2018. You've been through another financial crisis in 2008-2009, the creation of the CF, CFPB. Your role now is much more than AML, although you are still on the ACAMS Advisory Board. You were the very first chairman of the ACAMS Advisory Board, so AML is a pretty important part of your career. Um, but now it's much broader than that. If you're trying to explain to a compliance officer, not just in the AML space but anywhere, where do we stand in April of 2018 with a new and I say of my words chaotic administration so so there's sort of uh, changes going on constantly um, legislative changes going on perhaps regulatory and policy adjustments and guidance 
as a compliance chief today, what are the biggest challenges for you generally? And then specifically, talk a little bit about AML challenges. But just in general, running all of compliance and obviously working closely with your staff and dealing with examiners, all these different agencies, what's the biggest challenge in 2018 today? Well, if, if you kind of just even think through this, the, the biggest challenge is always coming back to how do you protect your customers? Um, and your good customers may have some bad customers in there as well. So um, you want to protect your customers, and there's, you know, we, we talked about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You know, th- their mission is the right one, protect, serve your consumers because uh, they're paramount. Um, and being able to do that without treating them like criminals and asking them questions as they're opening their accounts that makes them feel like, well, you know, why am I on the hot seat here because I'm trying to give you my money or they're trying to come in and they're trying to do business with you. I, I think the – I think the – um, and, and, and when you start to think through that, um, what are some of the th- issues that could surface? And, you know, as a chief compliance officer, I think about fair and responsible banking. So fair lending, privacy, um, all of those things that you want to make sure the customer's treated right, looking at customer complaints, looking at other triggering events. Um, and so all of that, all of that requires uh, a lot of, uh, discipline. Um, it requires really good programs with really good people with great technology. And so, you know, the thing that I think I worry about, and I'm taking this from more of an industry perspective, is um, cybersecurity. It just is such a hot topic right now. Um, For AML officers as well as compliance, right? Absolutely. It cuts across both. And so, you know, cyber has been a separate discipline normally in institutions unless they're smaller than fraud and AML. Um, And, you know, we look at things and say, well, they all kind of have an alerting system with with monitoring systems. They've got case management that has to happen. Um, but you don't want to blow up one discipline if another one's not working or isn't working correctly. And, and, um, but yet we need to make sure those three disciplines are really coordinating their activities. Uh, and it's one that, uh, it's, it's really exciting to see some of the things that happen right now. Um, and you see some of this even coming through FinCEN with, you know, better reporting of cyber events and things of that nature. Um, and but I will also go back because you and I live this together. I go back to 9/11, the Patriot Act, um, and we were we were government, private industry. We were on the same page. Right. That included the regulators and law enforcement, uh, together with the legislative um, bodies. But yeah, I think we've moved a little bit too far to it's still about I gotcha and, and maybe some of the stuff we're doing doesn't pay us the dividends as a world as a nation as a country because uh, the biggest thing that out in the AML space if I want to put it that way that we all need to continue to worry about is uh, terrorism and um, the only way we're going to really hit that is by having those Continued, and again, I give you credit for this as well in the 
having established some really good relationships with the government to help us work together to stop terrorism, um, or at least identify those events that, that could hurt us. And uh, we really need to get back to that. I think, yeah, you've encapsulated it so well, private-public partnership, and folks like yourself that have been on both sides understand that really better than anybody. Uh, Dan, I appreciate your time and obviously your your leadership in compliance as well as in AML, but thanks for sitting down with me. John, thank you. you were, you've been a great mentor to me, and even though I'm older than you, it's, uh, it's, been, a, it's been a great partnership. Thank you. Thanks, man. Well, that was very enjoyable for me. I think um, Dan and I could have talked another hour easily about some of the other issues that he's had to grapple with from the financial crisis to where we sit with regulations today, um, dealing with supervision in the banking agencies and CFPB. But, you know, again, we'll leave that for another time. The one thing that's uh, pretty clear to me and should be to those of you that know Dan is his generosity of spirit his commitment to the mission that we all uh, ascribe to, and that's dealing with not just compliance and regulations, uh, but to make sure that we do all we can to work with law enforcement and to protect our institutions, protect our communities. ACAMS uh, benefited from Dan's leadership. He was the first chairman of ACAMS Advisory Board, and he also has been very involved with a number of other trade associations and organizations. So I really appreciate the fact that he's able to take some time uh, during this conference to, to talk to us. I would uh, say this, if you ever have a uh, need for a recommendation or suggestion regarding compliance, uh, Dan Soto is always prepared to give you a hand. I want to thank him for joining me today and uh, with this edition of uh, AML Conversations. This is John Byrne signing off for now. We will talk to you next time. A lot going on in 2018, and AML Right Source is right there in the thick of things. You should understand that we are hiring, so go to our website for more information. Also, we have blogs, white papers, and other information that is essential to keep AML professionals up to date on current news. In future episodes of AML Conversations, we plan to talk to government and private sector experts in the AML, financial crimes, and terrorist financing space. We are interested in hearing from you, so please send any of your thoughts, comments, or individuals you would like to hear us talk to to info at amlrightsource.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.